Welcome back, everybody. Boy, I tell you what, it's a beautiful day to be sitting here with you talking to you today and sitting here with my good friend, Chancey Lewis. What do you think about it today, bud? Oh, good morning, Bradley. Good morning, everyone. Yep, same thing. We've been blessed again with a lot of a lot of pretty Sundays here lately. You know, here it is, the second Sunday in a row that we've got a bluebird day again, so it's nice. Yesterday, it was snowing and sleet, you know, an hour, and then an hour and a half later, it was uh, sun shining and 10 degrees hotter, so crazy all weather the, in Texas. We got all that yesterday. Yeah. And now tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Yes, sir. Yeah, so uh, me and Chansey, if you don't know, we, we, we record here at a feed store that we own in Cameron, uh, Cameron Farm and Ranch Company, that uh, where we sell feed and different things, and my wife has a lot of stuff that she likes to do, and so she's doing Valentine's baskets for Valentine's this week that she delivers to the schools, and we kind of got kicked out of our recording studio. Yeah, we are. We're sitting in her shop. All yeah. She's not here and sees us set up in her uh, boutique. One of these days when we get good enough at technology, me and Chansey are going to set up a camera and video this so you can actually see what we do during one of these episodes. But <laughs> but we uh, we got booted out because it looks like Valentine's threw up in there. It's balloons and candy and baskets and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and our other little recording studio we go to is full of plants because it was 28 this morning here. Yes. And we got our first shipment of tomatoes and and flowers and all that type of stuff my favorite time of the year i love gardening and the plants and all that time of stuff just makes you feel like spring is in there oh yeah it's here and you know and out there in the woods and pastures you start paying attention look i mean spring's here it's coming you know there's little spring wildflowers and stuff that's you know you're starting to come i saw some bloodweed you know coming up that was only about two or three inches tall the other day i bet it liked that 28 degree weather <laughs> yeah it was down in that bottom you know and it may have survived or not i didn't look at it this morning but i noticed it just the other day some little blood or giant ragweed what some people call it around here well uh the cold weather is definitely hanging around this year yeah and of course it's still the first of february so uh, a lot of things are about to start happening in the agriculture world uh here in the next couple weeks whenever it starts soil temperatures start to warm up and and uh, the earth tilts just a little bit man it makes all the world a difference in what's going on and the way you feel and everything else sure well i mean i mean i know all them farmers they're getting really it's it's fixing me planting see yes corn people putting planters on and and about to start putting it out there and hope a little uh, late freeze don't come and hope for the best with as expensive as everything is this year there's also the time of the year to be doing different things in the woods and today we're going to talk to you a little bit more we left off last week we talked about two of them i believe we we uh we discussed uh control burning last week and about the importance of that this time of the year what else did we mention we last also week, talked about disking we know? talked about disking yeah. and stirring up soil and and it's the time of the year to be doing that well we kind of left off two little topics of that also is uh, some very important things that you could be doing in the woods right now yeah so like i know that we mentioned last week uh shredding brow surveys disking fire and we went like bradley said we went into detail on the two of them but today we'll spend just a little bit of time going in a little bit more detail just kind of brush on shredding and browse surveys and why we do those things and what are some of the benefits of them uh so i guess you know just start with browse surveys and you hear about browse surveys a lot particularly if you're a manager you know that's gotten interested in like MLDPs or managed land deer permits or like because browse is really looking from a deer management standpoint it's really common in south texas but they're starting to utilize a little bit more in the hill country and even in our neck of the woods in the east you know but browse surveys is a big deal in south texas that's and it's important for us during wildlife season because it can be a form of census you can turn that in with one of your seven management practices in wildlife you know is census and a browse survey can be used as a census if you're not doing a spotlight survey or if you're not counting, you know, winter bird surveys. Or this is a check in the box for that. Or quiz check in the box for it, you know. And I actually, 
like browsers because I did tons of them when I worked for Parks and Wildlife, but I still utilize them too. And maybe it's just the plant guy in me, but the plants are telling you because the plants are what the critters are eating and they're telling you. So I'm always looking at plants. And I know very little about this, but talking to Chansey is really quite fascinating. Well, yeah, so basically a browse survey, it's used to help determine deer density and carrying capacity. Now, it's not, you know, an exact science, not written in stone, and there's some bias in it, you know, as far as because, you know, each individual biologist or each individual landowner is counting plants. But it's basically uh, you go out to your property, you know, and you count your first, second, third choice plants. And what you're trying to do is you're going to try to count that current year's growth and you're going to be doing this in the winter time and the reason that we want to do it in the winter time is because number one the winter time like i said from a wildlife standpoint the woody plants are your backbone of your habitat they're like they're the meat and potatoes that always has to be there so and give so, us a few of these chancy the first second and third choice plants that you're talking about okay when you talk so, about these so first choice plants that I'm, I'm always looking at in this neck of the woods is hackberry cedar elm those are first choice those are first choice plants that they're going to be the first thing eaten if it's within a deer's reach in a bottom land you're going to see some type of pressure on there unless there's just no deer hawthorns any of your like uh what people call um not possum hall you know possum hall's deciduous holly here but like your hawthorn your genus crateguses you know um what people call red halls around here there's several different species that's a good deer fruit greenbriars that we mentioned deciduous holly is a really good one so, you know, deciduous holly and yopon are really, you know, they're they're like kissing colors. They're, they've got the same genus. One of them loses its leaves, the other one's doesn't. Deciduous holly is a good deer food, great deer food, whereas yopon's not so much. But they occur in the same, different, same habitats. Most of the time, if you've got a deer density that's pretty high, you're going to see some serious use on your deciduous holly. So we can't really use those to be our indicator because that that's dessert. Like those yeah, deer, they, ice cream they love to eat They're that. They're going to eat them. But I do They'll overeat on that. Yes, I look at them because this is why. If I start seeing those plants that aren't regenerating, like if there's so many of your ice cream plants and if they were out in the open, they're just being hammered, 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 that it's losing its viability. It's losing what I call, it's becoming what I call thrifty, spindly. It just doesn't look good. It doesn't look like it has much vi- vigor. That means that plant is every time, you know, it's energy. It's already tough. So it tries to put on a new growth to take the sun's energy, but then something's biting it off. So then it's got to take energy from its root to try it again. If you can, uh, you know, continue this process on and on and on, that plant will eventually die. So I'm constantly looking at those first choice plants because from a deer standpoint, in my standpoint, you want as many first choice plants as you can out there. So I constantly monitor them, constantly look for them, but also be really looking at your second choice plants too. because Once they run out of the first choice, these are going to be the next thing they go to. Yeah, they're going to be going to your what you know, your second choice plants. And be looking at them because if you start in the wintertime, start seeing 40, 50, 60% use on the current year's growth. And so you can kind of tell if you've paid attention to the way a plant grows. We said they grow from the very tops and the very bottom. So the apical merits gem. So like last year, we had such a crazy year. If you planted, you know, a little bush or a little tree it had three growth spurts last year i planted a little oak last year it grew in the spring probably six seven inches and then it grew again the next rain in the next month and a half and it grew had three growth spurts last year and you can kind of tell by the color of the bark and by the color of the stem that current year and if that current year is getting bit off you know every time you can tell the difference between what was grown this year and what was grown the previous year just on the plant and so that's what you're counting that current year's growth because it's telling you how much use is going on right now on your property we would just go with a tally counter you know one of those little clickers and you walk to each species of plant you know and you count 100 stems and some of them you may not be able to get 100 stems of 
new, and when I say stems, apicomeris stems, and we're counting bites. You know how many bites we're seeing, and this is at a certain height too. Yeah, within a deer's reach. So within. you're thinking everything in a deer's world is basically you know 36 inches and down. You know you're counting stuff that's within reach. You're not counting anything up high, and you're not counting third choice stuff like mesquite. And I wouldn't even consider third choice even. They won't hardly browse it. You know, but um, you're counting that stuff there, and you're counting bites. And that's what you're looking for on that current choice. And that will give you over time, you know, if you plan enough. So you count 100 stems of a first choice, all the first choice you can find. Then you go count 100 stems of your second choice. And then you've got a tally counter. You enter it into a little spreadsheet, and it'll spit it back out at you. You know, it's like, look, you got this much use on your first choice, your second choice. And that kind of gives you an idea. And you use that to also go with your spotlight survey or your stand count surveys or your pellet counts or your online whatever survey method you're using it's more data it's more data you're putting more data points there on the board it's making you have a better idea how to manage your herd and while you're on the while you're on the topic of talking about counting bite marks well you could tell the deer's bite from other types yes of yeah so this is very critical too y'all because especially in south texas we also have lots of things that are eating the brush down there wood rats are eating the brush uh you know cattle will will browse you know cattle i know they oh they love that they, they'll definitely browse but they they, their feeding strategy is different. And so a deer does not have a top teeth. They have a hard palate. They have bottom teeth and no top teeth. Well, no top front teeth. They have top teeth in the back. But And so when a deer bites something, you think deer are very selective. They're not like a cow just reaching in there and grabbing and pulling. They're reaching and grabbing one particular apical mirror stem, one particular little twig on that woody plant, and they're biting it off. Because they don't have top teeth, they generally will leave like a little tit of bark hanging, like a little tit that sticks off. Whereas a rodent has top teeth, like a wood rat that browses a lot. And, you know, some of the old literature from Dixon and Mammals of Texas, I even considered some types of uh, wood rats that got so abundant in South Texas as a limiting factor to deer herd. Oh, because wow, they because take, they're the competition for browse. Yes. And so, and if you've ever seen some of them wood rats down there and some of the mittens they've made and how much browse and how much use they can do, I believe it. But they have top teeth, so they always bite at like a 45 degree angle. You can see a bite on a little twig. It's always at a 45-degree angle, sharp. The it's rodents? From a, from a rodent, yeah. And, and even rabbits. If you're out in West Texas or in places of South Texas, you know rabbits will browse, especially jackrabbits. You know, they have top teeth as well. So they, they'll, they, they have a different bite. So when we're out there doing those, we're counting those deer bites. And um, I don't, for lack of a better, there's almost always a little tit with it. I think you can Google search, you know, white-tailed deer bite and there's probably a picture of it that some biologists took for parks and wildlife or something and put it up there but that's why we're going after uh so basically you know we're counting in the winter doing those surveys it goes to our surveys and it's basically to try to help us manage for drought like we said we well i think that's important to point out chancy when you're when you're counting this you're, you're counting this for a number of deer that you would want to have under the worst circumstances and a drought like whenever conditions are really limited Yes, because that tells you if you're running a carrying capacity that can handle a drought year, that means when you have a good year. You'll have really just, good deer. Yeah, you'll, you'll have, just, yeah. have plenty to eat. Icing on the cake. Yes, and so really we should probably be doing the same thing with people. <laughs> yeah, well, no, we definitely need to uh, uh, live within our natural resources and our limiting factors. Yes, sure. yes, you yes. Know? It doesn't seem like we do that enough. Uh, well, wars have been fought over limited resources. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and it will again one day. Yeah. That's the first, second, and third choice plans that Chancey talked about. And then we mentioned some third choice. 
Yeah, in my neck of the woods, you know, third choice plants are something that they're just not going to eat at all. Like in South Texas, it'd be like desert yopon. And here, I know yopon is for the most part kind of considered a, a second choice plant here, but I kind of, in my book, I kind of lump it with a third choice plant, you know. Um, I just I don't like seeing much use on yopon. Um, some other third choice plants out there would be, you know, like older black jacko, you know. Or, like I said, some people there's a there's a kind of some gray area between where is a second choice end and a third choice beginning. Right. But um, as for the most part, those a lot of those plants have lots of resins and tannins, or you know, a lot of your stuff. Not like poison ivy. I mean, deer love poison ivy, but some of those uh, yopon is a good one. Um, let's say grasses, you know, but they just can't utilize grass or anything like that. Was well, there a magical number on these counts to where you're like, okay, I got too many deer here. We're going to have to do something. Well, this like I said, most of it is you start looking at your first choice. And then you start looking at your second choice because those are your two main ones. You know, Is there if like a percentage, though, chance you're like, okay, choice. I counted 100 yeah, of these. about 40 and, to 60 stem pites you know, okay. on, a, on a second choice plant. So, uh -huh. like I said, if you're starting seeing, you know, 40 to 60% use going into the fall or early winter on your second choice plants, you've probably got too many deer. Yeah, you probably that too many for that habitat anyway. Because if you're seeing sixty percent use on your second choice, chances are your first choice are little or non-existing or not doing very well at all, or they're growing in a place that a deer can't reach. So a lot of your first choice they'll be protected, you know, like where a deer couldn't reach them or growing as a nursery plant up underneath some shrub. That's kind of the thing to look at, and also hedging, you know. So you can also just tell by the way the plant's growing if it's getting a lot of use. You know, it's, you'll have hedged you know, hedged plants if they just keep getting hammered and hammered and hammered. I mean, I was on a place out in um, oh, uh, Marble Falls two weeks ago, and uh, you know they had some kidney wood out there, and I mean where you found it, it was just shredded, hedged to all get out. It was like a landscape plant like somebody have in their yard and that's just from deer just from wow eating it, you know and eventually we'll kill it they had way too many deer on that place i mean around here especially it seems to be like it's getting to be way too many deer i bet if you went and did a uh, your brow surveys like you're supposed to you probably see a lot of overgrazing going on on that yeah especially in your bottomlands here in Malum county you go get down in your bottomlands and you go look at your cedar elms and you go look at your at your hackberries, and you go look at your possum halls, and you go look at your little hawthorns, your crotiguses, and oh, another good first choice browse plant that curves and bombs, and it's really fun. Oh, I like counting it. It's just a good plant. It's rough leaf dogwood. You start looking at those plants in our bottomlands, and it will tell you real fast that you've got deer, even though you're not thinking you're seeing them. Your plants aren't lying. They're, and, they're, they tell the truth. And so the the. It's not a good idea at this point to go out there and supplemental feed because you're you're just feeling the problem that you already have by you know which is like in cattle you're like okay they don't have enough to eat I'm gonna go feed them yeah well in the wildlife world you know it's t theoretically it's mismanagement to try to use supplemental feed to increase your carrying capacity beyond the the habitat in our world we try to manage the habitat and supplement is what it's just is so generally if you got too many deer on your place and they're hurting the habitat that's when harvest probably needs to be increased makes sense yep. my friend yep harvest increasing so that's why you know the state started allowing us shoot does in Milam county because you know they can sustain a harvest now try to keep it within the carrying capacity and chancy could help you with any of this kind of stuff with any of these population counts and surveys and all this type of stuff through his business that he does uh so that takes i mean that's a little bit about brow surveys and now that brings us i guess to the other thing you could be doing this time of the year because you don't want to wait too long to do this one no no and the other one's shredding and so basically shredding it can 
I like to use it if burning and grazing is not feasible. You know, a lot of us landowners, you know, we're just not set up for to run cattle, you know, or don't have the cross fences or for whatever reason. Or you have your place in wildlife. Or you have it in wildlife. You just don't want to mess with cattle. Or, you know, or if you're trying to destock some places, you know, destock for a little while and let their, their land heal for a while. So that's where you could go and you shredding, you know. And like I said, it's not, in my opinion, as good as grazing. But it's the next best thing, you know, for removing decadent grass, you know, from burning. So. And sometimes conditions won't allow you to burn. No, if you in dry, windy band. conditions, yeah. uh, you know, on the wrong uh, the time of the year, you need to be doing it. Sure, or t- your time constraints, you know, whatever reason, you know, sometimes you just can't pull off a burn. You know, it takes a lot of moving parts to make a burn. You know, you got to have help. You have to have people. You have to have equipment. You, you have to have good neighbors. You got to have to have good neighbors. You need the humidity at the right. You need the wind speed at the right. You know, you got a lot of different things in moving parts you're trying to think about and all you need to shred is diesel and a tractor yeah yeah that's all you gotta do. maybe a tube of grease if you're one of those guys sure yeah definitely need a grease <laughs> it makes me think of my brother i brought his shredder one time and i looked at that dang thing i was like i don't think he's ever greased that shredder <laughs> that wheel wouldn't even turn you the know? pto <laughs> shaft won't even slide you yeah. gotta use a hammer to beat it on yeah, yeah. you know like wouldn't know just, anything about that chance <laughs> no 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 but basically, so shredding can be done in February. That's a whole other episode on equipment it, maintenance. Oh, man, golly. But, you know, it's so critical. <laughs> I mean, just greasing something every day and just making attention. Uh, it could save you so much headache down the road. Yes, it could. Golly. But so that, so, I mean, a match is a lot easier to maintain than what a shredder is. But, but again, you got to have all the right conditions for that. Whereas shredding, you could go out there this time of the year and take care of it in a, in a day's time but you don't want to wait too long no and so right now you can shred in february and i kind of recommend shredding any time from august to february even in, in mid-march you know depending on what your what your goals are but you can shred right now in real decadent stands like february right now and that promotes forb growth it it'll let sunlight get back down into the ground and increase that soil temperature just a little bit make some plants germinate whereas you're just sitting there with decadent grass and you know not standing hadn't been stimulated um you know it's just it's not as productive so doing it right now you can also help your your bunch grasses and then you can also stimulate forb growth something to mention this is extremely extremely important if you have a property of uh native grass particularly a little blue stem and it has not been what i would say grazed or burned or shredded in period of years it's just been sitting there kind of decking it's starting to look thrifty be very careful shredding it. You can kill little blue stem by shredding it too low, particularly any of these. So a lot of these bunch grasses, they don't like to be grazed too low or shred too low. But it's one of those things that you can kind of train them compared to. Compared to a Bermuda grass. Compared to a Bermuda grass. Yeah, like so, you know, native range, I always say take half, leave half, you know. And theoretically, by taking half, that means you only let the cattle graze 25% of it because the other 25% is going to get trampled or urined on or pooped on or whatever that's 50 percent then leave 50 percent that's kind of the general rule you know that range managers try to follow but but it's even important this time of the year when it's dormant you know i asked a person a range specialist at one time i was like because when you burn it you take it all the way down very knows true what's the difference and their answer was yes it is but i could possibly argue that maybe a little bit and i may be wrong you know 
I could see argue because like, well, what's the difference between burning it right now? Because if you burn it right now, it burns it right to the ground. Yeah, you don't leave much. You don't leave fifty percent of it at that <laughs> no, point. No, so but I think you know from a habitat standpoint, you know, because you want to even if you burn, you don't want to. This burn isn't all necessarily for plant health. Probably the fifty percent is more for what you're leaving for the for the wildlife. Yes, and for your cattle too, because yeah. even even guys that are grazing their native range, you know, that native range is a renewable resource. And those cattle guys, you know, they know if they destroy the resource, they're not going to be able to continue running cattle on it, you know, without having to put major inputs in it. It's always good to, if you're going to shred a decadent little blue stem that has not been burned or grazed for a long time, be very careful. Do not shred it the first year and destroy the integrity of the bunch. Because, like I said, if you don't kill it, you'll set it back tremendously. So for a lot of our little blue stem, that's probably around eight inches. So don't shred it any lower than that, especially if it hasn't been disturbed. Now, the next year, you could probably get by shredding a little bit lower. You know, I wonder if that depends on the time of the year, too. Like, for instance, if you shred it lower in the middle of the winter, like a month ago, and then we get all these cold, this ice and stuff on top of it without that extra I think mass, so. that extra biomass there to protect it. You know, I bet you that probably could cause an issue, too, with removing too much at the wrong time. It probably does because most of the shredding, I know this firsthand because I've done it. You know, I mean, when I was young, you know, oh, yeah, I'd go shredding. You always hear, but I'm like, whoa, shredded that way too low because the next year you look back, it's looking terrible, real thrifty. Just And that was an area that hadn't been grazed or burned or shredded. Just, you know, I went in there real green thing. Oh, I'm going to change the world, make this great. And, you know, it made it better, but also hurt some stuff too. So you live and you learn. And you need to get this done before fawning season. Yes, fawning nesting. You don't want to be shredding during the – so right now February, you know, is good. But you don't want to be shredding during fawning nesting season. So that's summertime, spring, up until about August. Come August, you can start shredding. I like to shred twice a year. I try to shred in August, get everything moved, decadent, let your fall rains come have good fall wildflowers same thing this time of year shred now get it going and i've even shredded in places of my little blue stem where i had a bunch of rye grass coming up or cool season stuff you can even shred on into march you know um well the earlier specific areas and you're not going to hurt your bunch grasses but you need to be careful because you may start getting into your nesting season stuff like that so and i guess the earlier you do it you protect your uh threat of wildfires and stuff throughout the winter yes. if you do it in august you, you know you don't have all that tall tall standing uh dormant grass dried grass that that could be a fire hazard yeah and that reminds me when i was working on the border fence and i was in, working i think south of deming arizona a little place called antelope wells on the boot hill of new mexico there was a ranch i always drove by and i wish i'd have stopped and taken a picture of they had a big old sign out there and it was all blm just properly grazed desert grasslands you know and they had a sign out there that said grazing prevents blazing and it's so absolutely true sure it is yeah. and if you're not going to graze it you got to do something with sure it. yeah because eventually the decadent grass is not good for anything wildlife or even the plant itself so those grasslands needed some type of disturbance yes and same with our uh post oak savannah you know it needed some type of disturbance and blackland prairie so when we're trying to get that system we need to be thinking about grazing shredding fire those things discing using them as a tool and so you want to do it before the, the fawning period because the the deer will lay their babies inside of all this yeah. this cover and stuff and if you go wait too long i think i told the story before where we where we had all the deer laying out there and we couldn't you can't see them if they're out there in this thick dormant just just overburden of dead blue stem and and 
I mean, even like things like Johnson grass and that sure. type of stuff, if you're not going to see them in there. If you go to shredding too late, they're not going to get up and run when you get close to them with a the tractor. You're going to run smooth over yeah, them. Yeah, especially if they're young, like young, 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 you know. So definitely don't be shredding them. I mean, sometimes you have to around your houses or fireworks. But from a wildlife management standpoint, try to shred between August and, say, March. And it know, makes a good like mulch that. on the ground, too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, you know, a good compost, a good mulch for for uh, uh, cover, and and uh, me and Chancy were actually talking about that earlier about probably being one of the main reasons we don't see turkeys around here is because of the fact that you don't see a whole lot of these these grass types like what Chancy's talking about with the no, in my opinion, the co the well, while we're talking about the the fawning and nesting Excuse period, me. I guess is what we're we're talking about more. Yes, you know, and so like I said, a, f- a fawn, a white-tailed deer, isn't near as picky as a mother hen, a quail, or, or turkey, you know, and because the, the mother fawn, I mean, she can, she, it doesn't matter, she could lay her babies in a solid hay grazer field, you know, sorghum alum or Johnson grass, you know, they'll be fine, or, you know, it's not what they prefer, you know. They got they long legs, they could walk over the top of taller grasses. yeah. But as me, like when I look across this county, Milam County, we got woodland, we got bottomland. You know, theoretically, we ought to have some turkeys, we ought to have some quail. But what we don't have is brooding cover. I think the number one limiting factor, and this is just my opinion, for quail and turkey is brooding and nesting cover. And brooding cover for turkey, when I say brooding cover, this is where the mother hen has hatched her babies and she's got baby poults following her around. And they're eating insects and spiders. But they also need to be protected from predators and aerial predators. And so brooding cover is areas of small openings, you know, near wooded areas, near roosts that have native grasses that were used to nest in all those native grasses and it has wildflowers and weeds and there's spots of bare ground and spots of thick and spots where but it's generally on about three foot tall where the mother hen can also see over it and when you just take milam county or most of east texas or the east or post oak savannah in general and i mean you just drive across milam county and you can count on one hand how many brooding cover areas you see it's either row crops or it's improved pasture. Those areas that were once or a pretty thick brush are thick, enormously thick brush. Like, I mean, yo pond thickets are just as bad as improved pasture. You know, pretty much from a quail trying to nest standpoint, or a turkey trying to nest or brood her brood her young in as well. So it's either like been overused or underused or something in between. And 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 in my opinion. That same holds true for for quail, you know, the conversion of these native little micro sites and native grasslands, you know, and native range. You know, back in the 40s and 50s, everybody had native land, you know, and they grazed it, you know, and they farmed it in little farms and stuff. And there was a lot more quail and turkeys back then. Well, there's a lot of people who are who have are starting to convert their their property to wildlife management. Yes. and And they're trying to get quail started. And so all this shredding, this burning, this uh, disking is very important if you're going to try to get quail going. Sure, and especially like taking if you've got those improved pastures, you know, and I'm not knocking improved pastures because I like to eat beef too, and I support our beef producers, you know, 100%. But um, from a landowner wildlife type goal, if you got an area that's mostly improved pasture, you might want to consider killing that improved pasture and uh, planting some native grasses in there, some native wildflowers and forbs, if that's your goal, you know, or if your goal is to do both, you know, maybe plant, you know, leaf corridors. You know, there's ways to manipulate to where you can do both. You and know, especially, rather than just having a monoculture 
of nothing out there that doesn't provide nesting cover, fawning cover, brooding cover, loafing cover, any of that stuff. Well, you know, especially in a hay field. Yes. I'm really impressed with what I see out of native grass hays as compared to coastal uh, uh, coastal hay as far as the nutrients, as they far as the tonnage. The they, they don't need they don't the inputs. Need the inputs. They, they do better in dry weather due to a better root system. Yes. Uh, you see, they're more adapted. They're native. They grew up here. You know, so they're they know what to do in in all situations. Yeah. Uh, so hay meadows are a real good place if you want to, if you're starting to think about something. Uh, absolutely. What would be one of the best species for that? For for if it, if you were looking for something for tonnage for hay, upland to, species um, in uplands. You know, Indian grass, little blue stem, switch grass. I know little blue area. stem does wonderful. It does well, and it can be hard to establish, and that's one of the problems, I guess, where so many of our producers, you know, have gone to improve pasture because the problem is with natives, you can't run the same amount of cattle per head. Well, I'm just talking in hay meadows, you know. Oh yeah, for yeah, just gra- tonnage, grazing yeah. is a is different thing. Yeah. I tell you what, let's just do a whole episode on that yeah, one day let's about do that. about because I I'm really interested in in converting some of these yes. these. Bermuda, these coastal Bermuda pastures that we have back to native grasses, because uh, from what I've been seeing lately, and and the more I talk to people, there's a lot of value in that. It is, and it also helps with the water, you know, the water table and infiltration. You know, the root system on native grasses is much, much more. You know, so it, it, it's it's its own topic. It's important. Well, but answer it. So in the bottom land, you know, eastern gamma grass or something like that. It depends on what soil type, too. We can't, we got to, you can't really just blanket it with one species, that's for sure. No, but, you know, one downfall, and I'm hoping we're getting better, is a lot of these native grasses are expensive to plant, you know. You have to have specialized And tough to get established. Takes years. You're not going to see results overnight, and that's so much of a problem with just human nature. We want to see things yesterday. Just like deer. I want big deer yesterday, you know, or I want native grass now, you know. I want quail, but it's a process. Rome wasn't built overnight and so you know brush management native grass management all that stuff it's a process not a project it's not something that can be started today and abandoned tomorrow right but it gives you something to do though and keeps you from getting bored yeah absolutely and if you own land that's always going to be the case so it sure is <laughs> and and uh, so uh, once again chancy what are those four things that we can be doing in the woods right now Right now, we can be prescribed burning. We can be doing some census stuff with our browse surveys. We can be doing some disking and fire guards or disking for make natural food plots. And we can be doing shredding, you know. And there's all kinds of things, you know. I mean, I guess you could be doing, start thinking about right now, if you have nest boxes out there, getting your nest boxes cleaned out because your tit mice and your black cap or Carolina chickadees are fixing to start nesting, you know. Um, be thinking about having those nest boxes ready to go for your bluebirds, you know, or even your wood ducks, you know, uh, if you got duck boxes out there. So those are things that you may be thinking about right now. And then also definitely be thinking about, if you are on wildlife management, the, you know, your annual report, it's coming. It'll, it'll be due in April, so. And we might hit on that a little next episode. Yeah, yeah, something. Uh, and so that kind of covers that. But now here's one thing going on in the, man, I guess this is kind of, this hits all aspects this hits yards this hits golf courses this hits wildlife this hits pastures this hits not really farmland a little bit i guess but but gophers gophers yes gophers and and moles uh in the sandy land they're a real problem they really are in milam county and i'm not saying that it doesn't happen there's two words i learned never to say and i just said one of them And, and when it comes to wildlife and biology you never say never and you never say always (laughs) <laughs> they just won't fit no it sometimes depends <laughs> so um but 
in general, we don't have gophers and moles in the Blackland Vertisols. I mean, I never saw any in Uralton or Mallorock growing up. They'd be pretty exhausted from trying to <laughs> trying to uh, dig a burrow in that. Yeah, just think about where we get the dry cracks. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that could really cause a little issue with your with your little runway you got dug <laughs> sure there. Sure could, especially if yeah, if y'all know what. You, what I mean by these vertisol cracks, if you live out in the Blackland of Milam County, Thorndale or Thrall or Yerlton's object, or you know, that area, Maldorot, then you know what I'm talking about. Well, you know, probably the biggest issue with it too out there is the the clay traps, the water inside of those inside of those open tunnels they have. It's almost like a crawfish hole Yeah. Uh, at that point. And I don't really think a gopher would do too good in that water and mud. No, and I just, like I said, they just don't occur. They're, they're a burrowing species, so they need like your mollusols, you know, those type soils are either your sandy loam, sandy silts, you know, to dig and burrow. Something that maintains movement, you know, year-round. And, you know, having cattle in the sand before, you know, we really used to cuss gophers. I mean, they're bad. They're huge. They seem to be a huge problem out there. They they make these mounds everywhere. They dig these tunnels that collapse and cause different problems. There's a million different reasons why a person could hate a gopher. Animal. animal. So, and they can be. I'm telling you, you can get too many gophers, just like you can get too many deer. I've seen pastures and even native pastures that have a gopher problem, I'm thinking. You know, like. I know that they're kind of a keystone species and they provide lots of beneficial things to the soil and the environment and creating habitat for other species. But in my opinion, too, you can get too many of them. When you look at some of those, you really see them like after you've done a prescribed burn and you look out there and like, oh, you know. You see all that fresh sand piled up everywhere. of my habitat out there is piled up dirt. From a gopher, and know. that's what you could see. Not to mention what's going on underground, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you know, you mentioned the, you mentioned these these gophers, but moles are equally bad. Yes, and we need to discuss moles and gophers right quick because I think there's a lot of confusion on. So basically, I'm not gonna lie; I was very confused on the two until I got to talking to Chancy about it. They're really quite different species. Oh, they're, they're different, but they're different orders. I mean, they're as different as a primate from a rodent you know i mean they're in complete different order. only thing they have in common really is that they dig a hole kind in of the, the biology of the species you know mm-hmm. so a mole we have the eastern mole in texas and then we have like several species depending on which mammalogist geneticist you talk and to. we have both of them in central texas both yeah we have moles and gophers both of them but the biology of the species is different but they basically occur in the same habitat types they both like the sandier soils the sandier loams but they have different number one. I said they're a different order. The, the the mole is its own order. It's insectivora, whereas gophers a rodent. It's order Rodentia, and insectivora means they're they're one hundred percent meat eaters. They eat earthworms and grubs and beetle larvae and all that stuff. Okay, so. so if you're familiar with biology from back in the high school days, well, you know there's what they call the the energy pyramid. And your bottom layer is your producers, which are all your plants. Yeah. And then you have your primary consumers, which are the the animals that eat the plants. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's where our gophers our fall. Gophers are they're, herbivores. They are herbivores. They eat the plants and stuff. But then these these uh, moles are going to be a whole level up as a secondary consumer because they eat the insects that eat the plants. Yes. Or maybe not even the plant, like your your all your microorganisms, like your earthworms and uh, and sometimes June bug larvae, stuff like that. Grub you know, worms. Grub worms, you know, um, which so moles can help in that aspect. But moles, in a, they're not, in me, in my opinion, moles are no problem at all for the producer out there on the hayfield. They just, they're not that big of a deal. Gophers are the issue there. But for golf courses and yards, moles can be a problem because the, they have different types of tunnels and moles will get on top of the surface. So much of our yards and golf courses, we, we water them. 
And when we water them, it brings all those food to the top, your earthworms and your grubs and everything. That's where the mole gets up, and they make these surface runs. And that's where the mole is going out there, and he's after these earthworms and these grubs and these beetle larvae or whatever. They and, basically tunnel at a depth of where the food is. Yes, if, the, if the insects are shallow, the, the moles are shallow. Yeah, if if the insects deep, are deep, the, the moles are deep. Yes. And so you might remember that movie Caddyshack. I don't know if oh, you yeah. Remember. It's a great movie. <laughs> that, but it's totally false science. Hey, well. Because that wasn't a, mo- a gopher. That was a mole. Yeah, well. <laughs> because you remember the shallow little tunnels that the that the, that the gopher? Yeah. You know, I'm doing the quote yep, unquote marks on my hands yep. if you can't see that right now but uh, uh you know he was always chasing the gopher out there yeah, the, the green was. the greenskeeper out there the best the golf part course. of the whole movie it I was. Thought, <laughs> as a kid watching it i loved bill murray i still love bill murray yeah yeah and, that, and uh and so i guess in, in actuality it was probably a mole with all the little shallow shallow uh tunnels and all that kind of stuff but like chancy mentioned before if you got if you have a yard that you water a lot, if you or even if it's wet out, like in just in the general pastures and stuff, well, the in, like it's hard to get earthworms out of the ground and they're in the middle of summer to go fishing with, isn't it? Yes, because them yeah. suckers are deep. Yes, okay. Very much so. But then it comes a good soaking rain, and then all you look and there's literally earthworms on top of the ground in your yard. Yeah, uh, because they just they stay up in the where the where the where the soil moisture is right. And so, in a dry, in your yards and in your golf courses where you got your water sprinklers running, where you're taking good care of soil mo- soil moisture, the mole's going to be pretty shallow, and you can almost see their whole tunnel, like where yeah. they've gone. Actually, like, you know, since they're in, ex- and, and moles can be because they can't see real well, and they generally don't get out on the ground at ever, whereas a gopher technically can get out. It doesn't like to walk on land. It's mostly fossorial, which that just means they burrow underground. Gophers can. I've seen them above ground but very rarely moles hardly ever you know and so they can fall to predation a lot of them i actually have an old dog that will kill moles she will she'll watch moles you know when it's burrowing its tunnel and she'll kill them but she won't eat them and coyotes when i've used them for bait before for a coyote you know trap and they won't even eat them you know they'll roll in them and it's because they're just they're they're so high meat eaters i guess they just don't taste good uh i know birds of prey will eat them they found you know mole uh and shrew skulls and like the pellets from owls and stuff but i know most most predators you know like badgers don't eat moles really but they do love gophers you know they go after gophers big time you know it's kind of you know back to the biology part of that with the with the producers primary secondary tertiary consumers we talked earlier about all the energy on earth coming from the sun Mm -hmm. as you go up that pyramid from the producers to the tertiary consumers you lose energy at each of those levels i wish i could remember the percentage of energy that's passed on from level to level to level but if you think about it and this is kind of odd to think about but that gopher being a primary consumer gets more more energy that you know has there's there's more of them there's more energy available for them to to survive as compared to the moles yeah and they taste better too because that same dog like i trap gophers in my yard and i when i trap one I got to stake my trap down or she'll hear him. She'll go grab the trap, you know, and go, go for it. And if I trap one and I can throw that gopher to her, she gobbles it right up. She loves it. You know, she loves to eat it. But so I say you better stake it down because I've gone out there before and I know I got a gopher, but I can't find my trap because the dog's done ate the gopher. And eventually when I'm mowing the grass, I'll hit it with a lawnmower, you know, my little <laughs> trap go flying or something. But And we're going to talk about those methods of gopher, <laughs> yeah. gopher and mole control here in a minute. Uh, but the, most of the gophers that we have in our area are called Central Texas pocket gophers. Yes, so they're, they're pocket gophers. And like I said, depending on who you talk to, 
there's you know anywhere from three to probably seven species especially now with dna or everything but in general they kind of like in our area and so boat we have if you live in gopher country you probably have moles too but now that we're on gophers for the most part we've got two of them that could occur here what they call the atwater pocket gopher and the baird's pocket gopher and probably they're can be geographically isolated like a boundary is a river something like the brazos river if you think about a gophers brazos river is a pretty big barrier for that gophers. would be pretty tough for a gopher to, yeah. to burrow through so i think you know but some of the mammalogists that's how they try to draw boundaries but so we do have they're, they're pocket gophers and they're really neat so they have pockets on each side of their cheeks and their fur lined pockets which if you're familiar with any type of mammalogy you know we also have pocket mice too like kangaroo rats you know and li- which are just i don't know they're they're little critters that go out there and they harvest stuff and they stick it in their little pouches inside their cheeks and then they can take it back and store it in underground chambers so that's a lot of times what these almost like a squirrel yeah, almost like a squirrel, but they're stored in their pot, you know, like chipmunks and stuff can store it in their cheeks. But these have, if you trap one, you look at them, these pockets are on the outsides of their cheeks. It's not on the inside. Isn't that neat? They're on the outside, and they're fur lined, and they'll shove them full of food and take them back and store them in their chambers. And in, in one way, that's a benefit of a gopher, because they disperse seeds and things this way, different roots that they take them and bury them, and then they catch root there. Yeah. And, and actually, a gopher is actually considered a keystone species in many ways. Yes, it really is. I mean, when you think about water filtration, too, you know, you'll de- for, for us producers out there in gopher country, you've seen on really, really heavy rains how those water will follow those gopher runs, you know, and then go blowing out and depositing, you know. Almost like a pipe. It really. And then, like, sometimes it'll surface and just shoot up all kinds of sediment, you know, in a whole different spot of the pasture. So it's actually almost like a little stream, you know. Everybody. Never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, uh, uh, they're they beneficial in that way, but also there's a lot of other wildlife that uses their little little tunnels and their 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 burrows for cover, cover like different frogs and different snakes. Yeah, and, certain snakes, you know, will use their burrows and hunt gophers. And then, you know, like in the pine snake, you know, in Louisiana, and gopher snake in West Texas and South Texas, or, and also the glossy snake, you know, that will burrow and – you know, they're going and go for burrows, but also mole tunnels and mole runs. So, you know, they, they provide a, a, a an important function out there in the system. And, you know, I even read somewhere where one gopher can move two and a half tons of dirt in a year. Oh, I believe that. And they take up one gopher can occupy an acre of ground. Yeah, and they're very territorial. Which so. an acre is about the size of a football, inbounds of a yeah. football field, roughly is how big about is roughly about how big an acre is. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, you know, you'll see a mound, and gophers travel in mounds when they're forming a new tunnel system. They they got to do something with that dirt, so they're moving that dirt, trying to create a tunnel. Well, they got to do something with it, so they bring it to the top, and so that's where you're seeing the mounds. They're trying to, and most of the time, those mounds are in a line. They are, and you can see. But then you know they'll stop. But that's only one gopher. Gophers are super duper territorial, and you know, and they don't have, they don't. Their home ranges don't overlap until breeding season, which is coming up about right now. Generally, you can look out there and believe it or not, have an acre or two or three acres, and you may be only dealing with two or three gophers. You know, so that's something on a smaller scale. You could deal with that animal by trapping, using traps to get them. But you start getting on a pasture level where you got 600 acre hay fields, then you got to, you know, that's a lot of traps to go out there. And depending on how much use you got, how many, you can tell how many gophers or how bad your problem is just on how many mounds you've got. 
Absolutely. So, and and so we talked about the good things that gophers are for with, you know, yeah. creating all these different things for these for other wildlife and sure. and soil drain or water drainage food through source. soil. Everything food source them. for for a lot of different uh, predators. Mm-hmm. But the bad things can really outweigh the good things in uh, in a yard from a yard lawn oh, standpoint, yard standpoint from a golf sure. course standpoint from a past from a hayfield standpoint. You try uh, to mow over a gopher mound. Oh my goodness! And not gracious. only that, they burrow underneath driveways or something, or a gravel road, or your dra- gravel driveway. So those burrows are generally about eight inches deep. And then if it get a heavy rain, it'll collapse on you. Now you got a trench in your driveway, or if you got them real bad, they'll burrow under sidewalks and stuff and screw up the foundation foundation uh, of your house uh, yeah i mean they can they, they, you know, same with armadillo you know burrowing up underneath and then it rains and you know so and they and, have a place in nature but that necessarily isn't in our yard and one of the biggest disadvantages of a gopher not necessarily so much for a, a mole again you don't hardly see moles too much unless it's it's in your yard and you've got the right amount of moisture and they're burrowing shallow but the gophers like to eat they eat plants so they eat roots and all different types of things oh, they yeah. really really harmful to things like your grass your garden trees yeah i've planted some trees the other day uh it's very proud been watching them had you know deer proof around them been babying them and went out there this was back in the fall went out there and overnight that tree turned brown i was like what i know i've been you know taking care of. i've been been a tree i've been babying and went out there and just picked it up a gopher had bit it off underneath the ground at the root level. You know, it's not coming back. It's Golly. Yeah, yeah. And so you you don't think about the, the gophers being bad in that way because you think of so much as, like you said, the mounds being a problem, messing up hay equipment, uh, making pastures rougher, destroying grasses in a pasture. But then also you got the whole issue with the trees and different things like yeah, that. Yeah, your little young ones, especially if you got a garden and a gopher in it, you know, they can just wreak all kinds of havoc. Do I we mean, know how many babies at, they could have a year, Chancy? They can have up to six. You know, per, but generally it's two to three is, is what they'll raise a female, and they pretty much have you know breeding season is about right now, very territorial. And yeah. a gopher only lives a year or two, very yeah, short lifespan. A year or two they can live, I'm sure. You know, depending on mostly because of predation, predation probably gets them. Because like I said, they will get out and about every now and then. And some like if you've ever had a like I said, uh, some cats, you know, house cats. You know, I'm not I'm not advocating house cats by any means. I can't. <laughs> Don't even get me on house cats, but anyway, uh, I mean, I've seen cats catch them before, and I know like hawks and stuff could probably get them as well. And you know, like I said, badgers and coyotes dig them up. You know, snakes get them, all kinds of stuff. So they're they're a food source. Whereas a mole, on the other hand, not much eats it. And so not only do they not like how it tastes, but they're hard to get out of that those deeper burrows. Yeah, and they just um, not much eats them, so they can actually live longer. I've read sometimes like a mole may live five, six years, you know, or or, or more. Believe it or not, for a little small mammal, that's pretty un- remarkable from a small mammal level. And what's neat about moles is they're an insectivore. They're they're in the same family as shrews, y'all. So they're like super energetic, just like little balls of fire. They can eat like they have what's called a super high surface area to volume ratio. So they lose a lot of heat just maintaining bodily function, just the energy that it requires them to stay alive. So they can eat or not not can they need. Moles have to eat like 33% of their body weight every single day just to stay alive. And, and, and remind you, this is in insects, not necessarily in plant growth. They, can't, they don't eat plants. They're no, not herbivores. It's insects and earthworms and grubs and beetles and beetle larvae, stuff like that. So mm. from a grub standpoint, moles can be good. But the problem is, is the damage that they can do, you know. 
So they're, they're, they make specific traps to target moles versus traps to target you know, gophers in your yard. Yeah, so it's easy to know. So I'm sure there's an economic threshold here like there is sure. with flies on cattle, like there is with anything else. And at, uh, up to which point you say, okay, we have too many gophers here. In a yard, it's probably one. Yes, it is. Uh, and so uh, uh, mole or gopher-wise, in a hay field, of course, it's going to be a little more because it's so expensive to control those things. Being as, though, being as though a five-gallon bucket of gopher poison now will run you like almost $200. Yeah, and just diesel uh, right now and time. And, and, and the equipment it takes to do it. Uh, so there's an economic threshold there. So don't go thinking that, that like all cattle ranchers are just going to go out there and destroy the gopher population for fun because that doesn't happen. You wait till you get to an economic threshold like, well, okay, you're money. They're okay. You. this is getting bad. We're going to have to try to knock out X number of gophers. We're going to have to try to do something to get rid of some of them. And so uh, mole and gopher damage, although you don't see a lot of mole damage, they can cause problems, especially on golf courses and yards. Uh, but there's two very different ways of controlling the two simply because of the biology of the t- of the two different animals. Yeah, so, you know, in general, poisons don't work on moles. Because know? most of the poisons are a grain that's coated in strychnine. Yeah, or another poison out there like Milo. There, yeah, I yeah. Think there's, you know, they'll, they'll strict, like if you go buy gopher bait, you know, or something like that. And a lot, there's a lot of... <laughs> stuff out there that i hear mole away or this away but in general if you got a mole problem you probably got to trap him because there's not a poison that i know of and then maybe they make a poison but the biology of the species tells me that no a poison doesn't work on them unless that poison is going to be taken up by the insect population if that was the case that'd be terrible that would be really bad so you can't have that you can't have poisons moving up trophic levels so um, i think that's what happened with diazinon if i'm well it was an insecticide that i think got carried up the levels yeah um, through ducks and that type of thing which you can't hardly get diazinon anymore no, you can't, you can't. Uh, but but so like chancy said most of these commercial gopher poisons are a grain that's coated with strychnine there's a there's another cheaper alternative out there i think strychnine is still the the number one used uh, control method for gophers but here with a mole you have something that doesn't even eat grain yes and so you're kind of wasting your money if if what you have is a mole problem compared to a gopher problem Mm -hmm. and which like chancy said usually you could tell the difference due to the tunnel difference in tunneling tunneling, and they don't go moles will mound like they've got to do something with like i said they got two different types of tunnels ones that real deep tunnel where they're just like a gopher they have to bring that to the top but once they have it established Moles generally don't mound nothing near as much as uh, as as um, gophers. Like I can tell you, and I've trapped gophers and moles for years, but I can count on one hand how many times I've seen mole mounds. But I see ton ninety percent of the damage you see from a mole is going to be the above ground surface tunnels, the tunnels, and generally they'll follow a sidewalk. So like when you're trying to find them, especially like if they've gone down. Because it seems like you're kind of like hog trapping. You see the damage, then you go out there try to trap them where the mole's already moved on. You know, so, but a lot of times they have what I call main runs that they use all the time. That's like the And they branch off of this. Yeah, they're interstate highways is what they use all the time. And that's usually like a fence row or a sidewalk, something like that. That's a main tunnel. It's usually a little deeper. It's not a raised elevated run. Whereas the raised elevated runs, what you see and it's causing the damage, you can trap them in that. But those are like what I call little lateral runs. They don't use them near as often, you know, except when the food source is there. 
So target those areas. They make several different kinds of mole traps. The ones that I like the best are, the number one, the Victor out-of-sight mole trap. I think that's the best mole trap out there. Steve Albano out of California makes a couple. He calls has a business called Trapline Products, I think, and he makes mole and gopher traps. I don't use his mole traps as much. I have some, but I love his gopher traps. To me, that's the best gopher trap out there. And we I'm might not make trying a, to market we, anybody at all, well, but I mean, it's just what I use in my opinion. Well, we might one day make a video of how to go out there and to set these traps and do this different thing. Yeah, because you need a probe, especially for gophers. So you've got that mound. So say you've got these mound. Well, there's a tunnel in between those mounds. So what I always do is I have me like a 14-inch uh, real skinny old uh, Phillips screwdriver. Well, I go out there and I start probing in the ground until I find that tunnel because you can feel it. The, the ground gives, you know, when you push that probe down in between those two mounds you just start pushing eventually you'll hit that tunnel and most of the time they're about eight eight inches deep uh six inches sometimes they can be shallow but generally they're in that eight inch range and this and, is for and, moles or gophers no this is for gophers okay moles, moles be too deep you ain't never gonna find well, it well you can but sometimes you got to go really deep but most of the most time you on the moles you catch them on surface runs especially the little highway surface runs that aren't as shallow but aren't that deep you know so but for gophers specifically, and then once you find that tunnel, take a shovel, dig it out, and then you'll find that tunnel, and you clean out both sides, and you set two traps. You need two traps because you don't know which way it's coming from. Because, like I said, it's just one gopher except during breeding season. They're highly territorial. Set your two traps in there. Bed it really, really, really good. The key is to have it bedded. So you push that trap inside that tunnel. And then that way that go over, and then you cover it up so it's completely dark. You know he don't know. He so you see, after you dig this hole, you need to put like a something like a like a piece of cardboard, a piece of wood. Yeah. You don't right. you don't push the dirt back in the hole. No, I don't. I leave it open, you know, in there. But I cover it, and then I put all the dirt that I dug from the hole up on top of that, and don't let any lying in. And that gopher's going to know something's up. Some people even take peanut butter and just put a slab of peanut butter on the hole inside. You know, and I don't know, I don't do that too much, but and some people think it makes them, hey, what's that smell? I'm going to stop pushing all that dirt. And one of the reasons that I like that albino trap is because a lot of the little Victor gopher traps, and like I said, I'm not trying to knock and promote anything. But I'm just telling you what I've observed. They have a, the paddle, the trigger on that trap is solid. So if that dope gopher, if he's pushing dirt, a lot of times he's pushing that dirt, and if that trigger trap is solid, that dirt is hitting that pan and it's setting the trap off before the gopher gets inside the trap oh, does that make sense yes whereas the trap line product trap it's got the trigger which is the same it functions the same way but it's a uh, hollow like it's it's only got the the perimeter it's only metal it's not a solid wall like a solid pan so the gopher can technically be pushing dirt and when it gets there that dirt will technically push through there a little bit and then let him get there and come in contract contact with the trigger and set the trap off and while you're on the and while you're on the topic of traps gopher and mole traps are very different yes very different because of the biology of the species and so my favorite mole trap is probably the victor out of sight trap but they also make the little spike traps you know which work real good for the tunnels and like i said there's a trap line trap too that works really good too the problem that i have with the trap line trap is really good sugar sand soils which we have a lot of it's harder to me to function. That's where an out-of-sight trap, which is Victor makes a big, and y'all have seen them. They're the ones like they have teeth, you know. You Basically, the mole makes its tunnel, and you dig out a spot on there. And what I like to do is dig that spot out in that tunnel where he's got, because that mole is going to use it, especially if you find the main one like next to a sidewalk. Dig a little spot out that's just big enough for that out-of-sight trap. 
and uh, make you some cuts in it for the jaws of that trap. Set it in there, get it all going, then do a, a dummy test. So, so sometimes there's roots and rocks and stuff there. You want to make sure those get out of the way so it doesn't interfere with your trap. Then once you have that all done, you build like a little bridge of dirt in the middle of that tunnel. So And then you set your trap down in, sir, and, and let the trigger hit the top of that bridge of dirt. So when the mole's coming through there... He hits that little pile of dirt, and, you know, that's no problem. He's used to digging around rocks and roots and everything. Well, he'll start pushing that dirt out of the way, and when he's doing it, a lot of times he's pushing up. And when he starts pushing up, he pushes up, and he sets that trigger out off, and that gets him. And, and uh, so moles, about the, yeah, only way, mole. that, that's the only, about the only way you're going to catch a mole is with a trap. Uh, there's not really too many other ways. of, Or they make these different uh, – I think they make these different, like – like almost like smoke bombs, like these gases you could put down into a mm-hmm. into a, uh, a tunnel system. Tunnel system where they into their holes or tunnel systems or burrows, uh, where like for instance, I think we have one at the store. Uh, it's called the Giant Destroyer. It's called a Super Gasser, and its active ingredients are sodium nitrate, sulfur, and charcoal. And I guess you'd light this and you put it down in the in the burrow, and it just basically fumigates a burrow. I guess is one way uh, that you that. Uh, besides the fact that you could uh, do as Chancy says and trap them, I guess that's one other way. Yeah, because I don't know, and I'm sh- I know they make repellents and poisons, so-called poisons for moles, but I just you know I, I don't think they work very efficiently. You know, the, probably some fumigation like that or some carbon dioxide that chokes them out or something from a mole standpoint or, or trapping them would be your best. And the good thing about moles are generally jam, damage on a small level, a yard or a golf. So yard. that's, you're perfectly capable of trapping them, isn't you? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not going to worry about them too much in a pasture no, setting. Or, and in my mind, I've never seen, like, moles in the pasture. I see their runs, you know, all the time on my place, and big deal. You know, it's not damaging anything. You know, it's just a run that you see going out there every now and then. Sure, and so uh, uh, I guess it's important to kind of point out too that uh, that you know you mentioned that they do all this burrowing underground, uh, basically because they're not very fast on top of the ground. So they have no. to they they basically are due to their biology. They're down. They're they're built to tunnel. Yep, fossorial. And Chancy talked about the amount of uh, energy, the amount of insects that a mole has to eat. Well, uh, reading up on it, it says that a uh, that a mole or a gopher can use 3,400 times the amount of energy to burrow the same distance that me or you could walk in. And so if you think about that, that's a lot of calories. So they got to eat quite a bit. Well, yeah, I mean, and you think about, too, like how small these little mammals are. And that's a lot of dirt to push. You look at some of those lines of mounds, and you just think about an animal the size of a gopher that's occupy a space the size of a football field it's pretty big Uh, absolutely and so that's so we have the traps and we have the different the different fumigants that you could use for the mole now gophers on the other hand are a little easier to control being the fact that they'll eat plants and and seeds and that type of different thing uh like we said they make different gopher poisons that have uh strychnine on it which is the the chemical that it's coated with and so they make different ways that you can control these gophers with that. They make a little probe that if it's a yard setting or something like that, you can buy the poison in pretty small amounts. And you stick these things basically through, like Chancey discussed earlier, like he mentioned with the screwdriver about stabbing it through. Uh, you get these poison probes, I guess is what I would call it. You stick it down until you feel that it's inside of a burrow, and you funnel a little bit of the poison down in there, and it's a grain and the gophers come through there, they round it up and eat it, and uh, that controls them. And it, if it's in a pasture standpoint or or in a hay field, 
They make the go for machines. They go for machines. They go on the three point of a tractor, and you buy that poison by the five gallon bucket. You pour it in there. It's already geared with a ratio of putting out the right amounts. And so I think you're supposed to mainly cover your perimeters. Yeah, you go uh, around all your perimeter. You, you, you know, it depends on how many, but go around the perimeter. You know, at least once, sometimes twice. Yes, yeah, so, sure. And around different like uh, spots of brush. Uh, you go around the edges of that. You uh, uh, and then after that, you just go through and you strip it in. And yeah, about twenty-five to thirty feet apart. Mm-hmm. It, it, it depends on how you're. I think my gopher plow, you know, is set to where if you put go twenty-five feet apart, it puts out about two pounds per acre. But that's with one little hole. You can adjust it by pull out the the uh, the little rotor and turn it around to make it double that amount, so four pounds per acre. But you know, about twenty-five to thirty pounds is what most people uh 25 to 30 feet is what most people you know put the track put it go it's how much they separate the the, the plow roughly it yeah. doesn't have to be an exact science exact, and that gives you about yeah. two pounds per acre poison out there yeah and it's underground y'all so you know the poison not sitting there on ground because that's something to be aware about it's milo so you don't want to spill this on top of the ground because birds will eat milo chickens will eat milo and this is laced with strychnine so it's something that goes underneath the ground and so well, Basically, the way the only thing that can get it is a gopher. The way this equipment works is and it's a got a it's got it's got a big uh, not a big but it, on the bottom of the plow it's got like a um, a furrow a, builder a, a furrow builder and what it does it makes an artificial gopher hole yes is what or go a gopher burrow is what it does and so it makes an artificial burrow and and it drops these these seeds almost like a planter yep into this burrow and the gophers come through they burrow through and they pick these seeds up and of course it gets them yes uh, but uh, uh, that's that's easy way to do it like Chancey said two two three pounds to the acre. Doesn't take a lot to do it. And now, if you're going to control these things, now's the time of the year to be doing it. Sure. Uh, because they're about to start breeding. Mm-hmm. And they're so, about to start breeding, so they're going to get more active males. And females well, you're going to get more of them in a few yep. months, too, once yeah. they've had so babies you want and the stuff. Mom, you want the female gophers to get poisoned before they have babies, you know, from a hay pasture standpoint. So right now is a good time to be gophered, you know, putting gopher poison out there into your pastures. And not only that – uh, the good thing about it, because those, those gopher plows are, you know, they, they don't affect the soil too much. And you can do it right now, and then by the time hay, even if it does make a little ripple or. Very by, little. Yeah, but by the time hay season's here, you can't even tell that it was done, you know, because the grass has grown over it already, you know. So right now, you can watch what you're doing, I guess. Most of those things, the main thing to pay attention, make sure that the wheels are always moving, you know, that way it's putting the poison out. And Do you have a chain on there, I yeah, think, chain, that needs to be oiled? If you hit a root or hit a rock, sometimes it can jar it and knock the chain off, you know, and you just need to... Need to be paying attention all the time while you're doing. It. Make sure that you're the la- the last thing you want to do is do a whole bunch of acres and find out you weren't putting seed out. You know, so I've done it. So. I was gonna say yeah. uh, that that's easily done. Yes. Uh, and so so that kind of I guess wraps up the 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 gopher and mole conversation, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, Now's the time to do it if you want to control your moles in your yard you're gonna have to they got the above ground kind of uh burrow looking shallow burrows possibly yeah if they're deep enough you probably wouldn't worry about them. anyway yeah and like i said moles are most of a problem in your yard your landscape stuff you know you so. got to trap them you got to gas them it's the only way you're going to deal with those yeah in my opinion trapping's the best way to get them you and know, then you, you got go your... to the store and buy a couple of traps and just have on hand you know and then you know when you see some damage go out there because those burrows will st- especially moles those major highways they'll stay intact for a long time and so even if you trap a mole when another one a year down the road will come back and 
reuse those same tunnels. So, you know, it's good to have them on. If you live in this type of habitat and you're a landscaper, you know, moles and moles and gophers are kind of part of it. Yes, and uh, and so uh, I guess that wraps up that. Yeah, you could join in our conversation if you'd like to. I created a Facebook page that I hadn't really put anything on uh, called Talking Country with Brad and Chancey. You could go there and like our page, and you could even message us on uh, Facebook Messenger there if you have any feedback or things you'd like to ask or like to say. Uh, of course, you could follow me on there, too. My name, again, is Brad Vosselin. That's V as in Victor, A-C-U-L-I-N. It's Czech. Doesn't stand, doesn't sound anything like wet, like it's spelled. But uh, my grandpa used to say, "I don't care what you call me, as long as you call me for supper," because I've been called every kind of last name you could possibly think of. Uh, and so, vacuum, vacuum, but Brad, <laughs> but Brad Vosselin is my name. And again, this is Chancy Lewis that I'm with. And he, he's Facebookless, Chancy. He don't have a Facebook page, but uh, I share with him all the stuff that you say. So, so uh, 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 we appreciate you listening again this week, and hopefully, you got something out of that about what you need to be doing in the woods for your wildlife or uh, a good way of handling gophers or moles. I guess this is it for this week. Chansey's once again, as always, it was a real pleasure. We hit over, I want to say, like a. I thought I looked this morning, had over 1,100 downloads. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, from uh, from our first uh, uh, six six episodes, I think it was, or seven now. Uh, this makes episode eight already, yeah. and it gets it's uh, always enjoyable to to be here with all you guys and. And uh, thank you for listening. And to to some of you people across the nation who listen and listen loyally, there's a there's a little map that tells us where people are listening at different parts of of the world, basically. But but it's kind of neat that that we have listeners up in Michigan. We have listeners in Illinois. We have, I mean, pretty much every state. There's at least you know one or two people or, or some people who are listening. And so it's kind of interesting to see that. Uh, and so to you people, we say thank you for listening and, and uh, uh, feel free to contact us on, on Facebook or and let us know what you think. Or And we appreciate you listening. But, but I hope you guys have a good week. And I guess that uh, this is signing off for this week. And I hope we'll, y'all have a, a good one. And I guess we'll talk to you next week. Sure enough. Enjoyed it, Bradley. All y'all out there, take care and have a wonderful week. Talk to you later.